Okay, so today we're here with Matt Tompkins, who's currently a VP over at the Outpost, uh, and also co-founded the, the U.S. Air Force Innovation Program called SpaceWorks uh, back during the, the start of COVID. Uh, so really excited to have you on today and talk about defense innovation. Yeah, sure. Thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the SpaceWorks was a, a huge effort by a lot of people. I was more there to lead some allied innovation programs uh, within Space Force and kind of take that role. And so that's what we'll be talking about here today. Awesome. Excited to dig in. So I guess first, I would love to learn, like, what exactly is allied innovation? Like, how do you define sure. it? And what do you think are like the key differences uh, between like traditional corporate innovation or even like occurs in a, a regular government? Yeah. So first of all, let's let's talk about the word allied. Um, you know, I'm very careful not to use uh, foreign or non-U.S. Uh, terms because allied implies that we have um, a specific connection, right, with a specific country or set of countries, and then also that it's somewhat defense related. Um, and so right now what's going on is the U.S. has seen a huge amount of success in innovation for defense and commercial tech where they align. And I'll talk about that in a moment here. And what we need to do now is kind of look and say, OK, now we've seen a massive um, growth in NATO Diana and the NATO Innovation Fund. So what sort of demand signal is this sending and where do all these programs go and how can, as you say, corporate ventures get involved with that? So from the U.S. side, um, we've seen the Air Force Ventures Program bring in billions of capital uh, from private industry into the defense sector. These are real numbers that private capital can come in, and it's through a matching program. Essentially, uh, we already have the AFWorks uh, and Naval X and Army Futures Command working with the SBIR program saying, we'll do these prototypes and we'll give you this non-dilutive funding. What Air Force Ventures came along and said, you know what, why don't we do a private capital matching program? So there's a lot more due diligence that's involved, but basically uh, it works as the Air Force Ventures, which is run with AFWorks by the Air Force Research Lab, will give uh, two kinds of programs. One is a tactical financing increase, and the other is a strategic financing increase, which is much larger. And then can we match that with private capital? So then the companies or the vendors have to go off and raise that private capital, uh, either through equity or venture. And what it does is it keeps those companies a lot more commercially competitive, and it really balances their portfolio saying, no, uh, the Air Force in this case is making an investment in a really healthy and well-balanced, economically uh, well-balanced company. So we have not seen anything with the allies, um, either in Europe or other parts of the world, really do these kind of matching programs, but now we're seeing that change. So now the NATO Innovation Fund is purported to raise a billion euros, which is going to be kind of a fund of funds over the next few years. And then they're going to be helping to execute those funds through the NATO Diana program. That's the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. Uh, and we're going to be hopefully involved in that. And I've been uh, working to help out that team uh, just a little bit here and there. So it's really exciting to see the allies kind of start in that. And they're looking in part from the U.S., to say what sort of lessons learned they can take from that uh, and not make the same mistakes. Uh, we made plenty of mistakes. Uh, <laughs> these are not perfectly run programs, but you can't argue with the fact that they have provided a mechanism to bring in and attract private capital into the defense sector in numbers we've, we've just never seen before. So it's very exciting. 
Yeah, it, it definitely sounds exciting. So I guess the, the natural follow-up, um, like what, what would you say are like the key like pain points or challenges or even myths associated um, when you're doing allied innovation and trying to match people up for capital? Is it really kind of like the same challenges in like traditional VC or, or PE where it's just hard to get founders past the early stage into like a growth round? There, there are similar hurdles, but they're from a different perspective, and I'll, I'll try to outline that. So most of government non-dilutive funding, uh, certainly easy, relatively easy to get the initial grants. So initial grants in the U.S. are 75K or 150K, which helps generate uh, studies. So basically just papers. Okay, so um, from an outline perspective, NATO ACT um, that's a command that has grant programs like this, but they're even lower dollar amounts than that. And so these studies serve to inform future procurements. That's that's the point of them. But NATO has very little, uh, sometimes no development funds for that kind of mid-stage or growth stage uh, awaiting commercial sources to simply mature the tech on their own and then simply saying, okay, when you're commercially available, NATO uh, NSPA, which is our organization that does commercial procurement, will then procure it once it's TRL 7 or higher. So that definitely creates that same valley of death that we're seeing in the U.S. And so what we need to do is to focus on that growth stage and to really find things. And Outpost and Outpost Ventures is doing exactly that. So we are going to be focusing on that growth stage uh, with the allies specifically to try to help NATO fill that gap. And we are working with NATO because they know that they need to rely on venture um, funds like ours to be able to do that. So we'll be uh, announcing our full plans uh, later this month and pretty excited to see where that's going to go. Yeah, same same here. So I get the, the natural follow-up. Um, is if you're looking at accelerating the commercialization of like dual use, um, even like traditional defense tech, like how do you start to align the the military uh, or government um, you know efforts with with the civilian sector? I feel like it's one of those things where a lot of like the long term strategic initiatives like don't necessarily align with like short term business KPIs. Um, so I'd love to hear about how you think about bridging those two worlds. Yeah, that's a fantastic question because. In the military, we're often looking at either vulnerabilities that we have or vulnerabilities that our adversaries have, and that changes, right? Because the capabilities change because the technology changes. So it's this constantly morphing environment of, you know, to use your term, KPIs and how you rank and rack and stack those. So first of all, we use the term dual use uh, to cover use cases and applications that provide capability for defense and commercial uses. So what I mean, dual, that means both, not either or. Uh, and so what we have tried to do um, as a result, defense innovation funds directly encourage strong traction, right, in both defense and commercial markets. In fact, uh, a large portion of the proposals to the DOD must contain a commercialization section, uh, which is pretty lengthy, uh, outlining exactly how the vendor brings in commercial revenue. So this is a clear indication that the DOD is looking to award companies with a well-balanced uh, revenue stream. And corporate ventures um, are looking for that as well. I think the difference to highlight here is that we've all seen um, defense investments just take a little bit longer. A little bit is probably being kind. Uh, but uh, what you can do then is you can balance your portfolio 
accordingly, much like you would with your personal finance, right? You've got stocks and government bonds. Stocks are a little bit more volatile, um, but have short-term yields, right? Bonds are a little bit more stable and have good long-term yields. And so I would say you can uh, hopefully take that metaphor and apply it to, to both commercial uh, corporate ventures uh, funding, and then and then obviously the the defense side of the house. So if you can have a good portfolio, you can say, look, we're doing these things in the interim to bring in some commercial revenue, right? But at the same time, we're going to apply this same technology because it's dual use, use, and we can use it for both uh, for the government. And then we're hoping to align ourselves with these program offices so that we can start getting orders in, you know, sometime next year or in a couple of years. So I think the fact that the Defense Department in this case recognizes that and says, though, you need to be doing both. What that's doing is it's creating better economic health for these vendors instead of vendors that only do defense work, uh, which we know and have seen is not entirely healthy for the company or, to be honest with you, the U.S. economy. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. I feel like when I talk to people about selling to the government, I always just joke and say, like, what are you going to do? Like, text the government? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the harder things, just going back to an earlier question of uh, what are some of the difficulties and the hurdles and stuff like that. Um, the government loves to change its organization as often as possible. Um, we also move around people, right, every few years. And so knowing who to call and then how can that organization help you is one of the more difficult tasks. And so that ends up being a large portion of my advisory and consulting to the people that we have uh, at the outpost is being able to, to help them sift through that. And I will say it's a huge part of uh, of what we do at the outpost. So it's difficult. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's extremely challenging. Like that's the same problem that like small startups face at the enterprise. And then I think at the government, it's just like tenfold um, the amount of like bureaucratic hurdles. For example, you might have to, to, to jump over. Uh, so kind of transitioning, um, when you're kind of comparing like typical corporate innovation, whether that's like an innovation team or a, a venture capital unit, uh, typically their, their biggest goal is creating an environment that's actually conducive to innovation. So for them, this tends to be embracing discomfort, you know, like looking foolish, really experimenting, varying from the typical day to day, um, ignoring what people tend to think. Um, and also really tolerating failure if like a product uh, or startup just doesn't work out. Um, I imagine like that's very, very difficult to embrace in the government, um, especially if you're dealing with multiple governments at once uh, where everyone really cares about the budget. Like you don't want to blow billions of dollars uh, in funding on dual use companies that may not necessarily scale based on the sector's needs next year or even this quarter. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that, that we can explore this. And I think probably the best one is like, where does it make sense to start embracing discomfort uh, at the government scale? I feel like it's one of those things where it's not as easy to like just start small and roll out a, a small program um, because you need the, the scale to affect the commercialization pipeline. If you're just looking at like early stage papers that then need to be commercialized and, and taken to the market. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Um, and I love the word foolish. Let's start there. Uh, that was really great. Um, so first off, I would say the government look, has the capacity and, and often looks plenty foolish. So so that, that, that certainly goes without saying. I think the difference, um, if I can highlight one, between kind of a corporate venture and the, what, the venture side of the Defense Department, uh, risk tolerance for technology failure is where the DOD has a much higher need. 
Um, and we've, we've seen that. And this is why they employ so many subject matter experts. So um, the best example I can think of this uh, that applies to kind of corporate ventures is Incutel, which is the venture for the intelligence community in the U.S. Um, and Incutel's rates and their business model is different from commercial or corporate ventures. And what that the majority of the reason is to ensure adequate due diligence is compromised, or sorry, accomplished for mission success. So certainly Theranos uh, taught us that due diligence is always at the utmost importance, okay? And I, and I use that as a pejorative example, but I think what, um, what it highlight was it legitimized, right? So if you have a, a different business model or different rates, uh, with a group like InQtel who says, sorry, we can't afford ever to have that kind of failure. Um, I used to work on missile warning systems, uh, satellites uh, for the U.S. Space Force, and their requirements are for failure is never. And, you know, all technology requirements all have some sort of tolerance for failure because that's just the reality of it. Um, and But when you're talking about nuclear missiles, it just says zero. And that can be very daunting, right? When you're talking about, okay, how do I apply innovation to something with a zero tolerance threshold for failure? Um, and so I think that what we need to do is to kind of um, understand how we can kind of make forward progress and then take um, uh, take that forward progress and take as, a, as small accomplishments kind of moving forward, right? We may not in the Defense Department be able to move leaps and bounds with innovation. And I don't think defense innovation, by the way, is ever going to replace traditional acquisition of large-scale bespoke systems. That's kind of always going to be there. What it can do is fill in the gaps, um, add efficiencies, and really create an environment where small businesses and, and new small and innovative novel technologies can kind of challenge the status quo and saying like, hey, this is what we're doing in traditional acquisition. And so the, the things to look out for is uh, phrases like, this is how it's always been done, right? That's a, that's a clear indication of where innovation kind of needs to come in. And that gets back to your culture question. So I think when you start to hear things like that, um, that's where innovation can kind of come in and say, that's a foolish thing to say. And you need to open your aperture and your appetite to some of those things. And, and here's how we can do that. Now, uh, having then uh, an understanding of how the business model and changes between corporate and defense, I think will really serve you in, in actually then executing that well. So I think that the natural follow-up here uh, is starting to look at the perhaps the gap between the like the private equity and VC world uh, and the government in terms of risk tolerance. If you're a VC, like you might invest in like a hundred million dollar pre-seed round in some rocket or nuclear missile, like just breathing the risk. You know, there's no product; it's just a great team. But with the government, like that kind of risk tolerance, like that's impossible. Like, the, you know, the failure rate has to be absolutely zero. And how can you know if there's no product, right? So like, how do you balance or, or bring together like those two worlds of, you know, like very, very, like anything is possible. I'm very open to risk. I'll just write a check in a day, especially at the top of the market cycle uh, versus like, you know, this has to be locked in, like nothing can fail in, in my, my rocket launch. Sure, sure. Um, so first thing that came to mind was uh, I, I heard ChatGPT uh, is spending $3 million a day to run their GPUs just for that to be available. And they're not revenue positive yet. Now, they're going to be. Um, and we've seen other companies and unicorns, you know, not be revenue positive for years, right? Uber is a fantastic example of that. 
Um, I think Silicon Valley scaled in no small part to the government funding. So the SBIC program in the 1950s and 60s is, is really what, uh, you know, kind of charged them. But the digital age helped usher in a lot of growth, but it was also a lot of hard work. So the government innovation programs we've seen pop up have already had a huge impact and enticing what I would call human capital. And so you talked about this whole, uh, I think you said anything is possible, you know, mindset, that kind of thing. So some examples uh, of how we've been doing that are the Defense Ventures Fellowship Program in the DOD. And then there's also a program called SkillBridge. And these are programs where military folks can get sponsored time, paid time uh, to work at a corporate partner, corporate venture, for example, and they do this. And they gain real experience and good, good perspective and either bring that back to the Defense Department, that's one of the goals, but also use it as a means to launch their own careers, right? And then those careers in turn usually help out the DOD in some sort of tangential way because they've had 10 or 15 years experience in the military and are now bringing that to the corporate venture. So those are really great, uh, you know, two programs where we've seen uh, that kind of bring that psychology into it. Um, but uh, I think justifying any program that is spending millions or even billions of dollars without um, seeing a lot of impact is, is tough anywhere. I think the military, um, you know, we've, the military does not have equity. I think that's the difference, right? The, the U.S. government does not own any interest in Lockheed or Northrop or Raytheon or Boeing or BAE. Um, now, I will say, getting back to the allied portion of our discussion, guess what? Our allies do. So the U.K. owns a satellite company called OneWeb, right? Norway, Luxembourg, these are strong military allies. They own sometimes controlling interest in defense primes. I don't think America is ever going to really get to that point. However, we should study that. We should talk to them, say, why does that work for you? Why do you do that? Why is that something that you want to continue to persist in your economy? How is that working for you? How are small companies perceiving that and breaking into that market as well? If they truly are our allies, then the, and we need to understand their technology to be interoperable, and we need to kind of understand their financial markets as well, and so that we can be interoperable just as easily with that. So you, you mentioned something really exciting, um, especially if you're someone who does like Web three investing, which is the word interoperability, especially <laughs> in a uh, you know innovation context. What what does that what, what does that look like? Like how does it make sense to share techniques, information, perhaps business secrets? Um, with other companies where, you know, in the private sphere, like that would be very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, so one of the best ways that we do that um, between uh, between governments is it's always kind of what's called a memorandum of understanding or an MOU. These are uh, not too lengthy documents, but they're kind of like NDAs uh, between governments, only uh, they may have or allow funding to be passed back and forth. Uh, typically, and I, I used to do international relations for Space Force. And so typically what you'll see in an MOU is, hey, if you want to use a contract from one government or another, that's okay. But what sort of information are we passing? And then how is this information kind of helping us work together? So some of that is like standards, right? Interoperability standards and stuff like that. But for the more interesting ones, in my opinion, are where we're going to exchange technology that's based in research and development. How are we kind of building future technologies to then be interoperable once they're in operations? Um, another example of how the government can work with private capital, private industry is what's called a CRADA. 
a Cooperative Research and Development Agreement, CRADA. Uh, and what a CRADA does is there's no money, exchange hands, but a, a CRADA says, hey, we're going to have a private um, company come in and talk to the government and say what they're working on. And we'll kind of give them some feedback and everything like that. But it's kind of a, a no pressure agreement because it states specifically any information is not going to lead toward a solicitation or a proposal that's specific. It's just in general, we want to have an open door policy with this company to be able to understand that. Now, getting to the venture side, um, we have uh, SpaceWorks and AFWorks have Kratos with venture, um, with corporate ventures uh, to be able to do just that. So there's a perfect example of how we're able to kind of pass information and kind of better understand uh, what's going on. Yeah, that, that makes sense. They're kind of like low stakes collaboration as opposed yeah. to like, hey, here's my customer list and every single technique I have. That's right. That's right. Now, I think, you know, the, the part that we don't talk about is like, Obviously, even though we say, um, hey, this won't help a solicitation and stuff like that, it's also great branding, right? It's great marketing. Um, but I, I think that if you just say we're going to be completely clamped shut and not talk about this because there's potential competition, that you're going to find yourself not being ready to come to market with that uh, solicitation or with that request for a proposal, and you're not going to get a good response. So it definitely behooves both sides. Uh, both the government in preparing the solicitations and in industry in preparing their response. Yeah, got it. And so, so that kind of mutual benefit is what creates trust between the two parties. Correct. Yeah.